Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What are some of the key factors in establishing and nurturing dual immersion programs? How can dual language schools attract and retain qualified educators in the midst of a national teacher shortage for these programs? How do dual language immersion programs transcend bilingualism and approach global citizenship and cultural awareness? In this episode, we continue discussing dual language learners and programs with Daniela Anello. Daniela is the head of school at DC Bilingual Charter School in Washington, DC. DC Bilingual Charter School is a learning community that ensures high academic achievement for all students in both Spanish and English, develops leadership, and values all cultures. We dive right into this episode by asking Daniela what DC Bilingual looks like now. Let's get started. Um, what does it look like now? What is sort of a, I mean, it's hard to describe a typical day at a school, but thinking about how you started nine years ago and what it looks like now, um, could you give us a kind of a brief overview of of what the school is now? Yes. So, so one of the things we figured out early on is that in order for people to really be successful at our school, they have to be really aligned to the mission and the values that the school is is trying to educate our children to have and trying to have our children experience. And, and that is something you can figure out pretty quickly when you meet someone. So, so it's really important that our staff, one of the things we've done very carefully is select the staff who work there and ensuring that they're there for the right reason and, and believing this work just as, as committed as, as any school, any of the school leaders are, and so it's this mindset thing. We need to find the right mindset. And once you do that, then we, uh, the way I can describe the school to you right now is a school that is really um, a family. It's, it's a school that where all of the people in it, the people working in it, our staff, we call ourselves our prof- the professional learning community, where we have these um these we connect foundationally by having the same interest in mind. We all believe that all of our kids can learn. We all believe that it is our calling to ensure that we give the best experiences possible to our students. We all believe that families play an important role in this work and that we need to engage them and make them feel welcomed and valued in in the school community and that everybody plays a role and that everybody's very important in this work. So, So when you find a way in which you can create this community, then what people experience as they come into this school is a school that is happy, a school where people uh, like each other and are, are very comfortable with who they are in that space and who others are in that space. 
and and it's a place where everybody gives it their very best. And so the feedback that I get continuously from anyone who doesn't know anything about the school is that it is such a happy place to be that people want to go back to it and people actually want to be there for as long as possible. Um, and then people want to join and they want to be a part of, of, of the school. And so, so many of our families even that get their kids in the school, um, then want to work there or want to volunteer there or want to spend as much time there as possible because there's this, this element of, of feeling uplifted by, by the way in which we interact with our kids and our families and each other that, that, um, that people say is unique to our particular school. Um, and, and just to give you a little bit more um, detail about, about what it looks like on a day-to-day -day basis, it's, it's very efficient. Everyone has a very clear idea of what they want to accomplish in, that, in any given day. There are very clear expectations in terms of the academic day, how much time we're spending on each content area, how much time we're spending outdoors. There's an agenda behind every single thing that's done. For example, in pre-K, when kids are having a snack or they're having their lunch, teachers have a hidden agenda, which is to have conversations with their, with their children in ways that families can have conversations with children during any mealtime. So teachers also have the snack or the lunch that children are having alongside them. They sit in small groups. They have family-style experience for eating so that they can look at each other in the eyes when they're talking and they can take turns sharing any information that they, they'd like to share with their, their table mates. And so you know, there's even an agenda to what happens when children are having a snack or a lunch. And, and that's pretty much what makes our, our, our school work so well is that we're very intentional about all of the experiences that, that children are having at the school and everybody knows their role within uh, the agenda that we have, you know, hour, hour by hour throughout the course of the school day on any given day. That's great. So I, I take three kind of main points from that. Um, thinking about the, the community, the culture, and the structures that you provide to let those that, that sort of community feel um, thrive. And I think it's interesting, you know, really, we haven't gotten to the main topic of what this episode is, which is dual language. But I imagine in order to have a successful dual language program, you need to have a successful community and a successful school. So let's let's transition a little bit into that um, that work with dual language learners that you're doing there. But I want to take a minute, and I did I you know I, I like to do this with anybody I talk to about these buzzwords. Is is kind of norm on language. So when when you hear what do you mean when you say dual language learner or dual language program, and how is that different, or is it the same as bilingual learner or bilingual program? How do we norm around that language before we really dive deep? Yes, great question. Um, in our particular school, and in, in when the way we talk about our dual language program is um, maybe different and it is very specific to wanting to create global leaders who are equally capable in two languages. This means there's not a, uh, um, a main language and a secondary language. Um, it is actually that both languages are main languages. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And we want each of them to be valued just as well, to have as many resources to support each of the languages, to have um, you know, a, the same amount of time dedicated to any activity or experience that children have with each of the languages. So to us, it's it's 
giving value and power to some of some of these children. It's, it's Spanish is their native language, and it's giving as much value and power and support to that native language as we're giving to the English language, which is the dominant language, obviously, in the country. So, so for us, dual language is literally giving children the opportunity to become literate um, in, in two languages and to be able to value both equally and to be able to navigate the world with both languages in, in, the, in an equally comfortable way um, and also in an equally proud way. So for us, it's also the cultural piece. With two languages, if, if, if we're doing the job that we hope to be doing, there's this element of really feeling special about being able to navigate the world across these two particular languages. And with that comes a level of pride and comes a level of, of, of respect. Um, and that, that can look like respecting their own heritage, their own traditions, their own cultures, and at the same time, respecting those of others. And so for us, it's much more it's much more comprehensive than the actual language piece. It involves culture and values and respect and and again, pride for, of who they are and who others are. That's great. Uh, you know, I think that's where we can kind of get mixed up in the terminology and the jargon. Uh, I think so many people at the surface think of dual language schools and bilingual schools as an opportunity for my child or children in my community to be able to learn two languages, which is wonderful. As a bilingual person, it's one of the things that I'm sort of most proud of doing during my college years is learning another language. But Mm -hmm. the ability to understand other cultures um, and to empathize, to become a global leader, as you put it, um, I think is is extremely important as well. So I I want to get into a little bit um, about DC Bilingual specifically, because there there are some things and statistics and some information that I've read about it that I think people would be interested in, in diving into a bit. So one thing is that I, I know DC Bilingual has one of the largest percentage, percentages of English language learners in the district, but if I'm not mistaken, you're also among the highest th- uh, three performing K-5 to schools. So yes. what are some of the keys to your success there? How, can, how would you advise other people in similar situations, of which there are many, to um, be able to do what you've done? So there's something that's um, just very easy to understand when it comes to what makes teaching work and the strategies that work for English language learners are actually the same strategies that work for uh, special education students. And they're actually the same strategies that work for uh, general education students. And, and there are just some really good teaching strategies that teachers, if they learn to use them and they use them regularly, um, can make a huge difference. And so at DC Bilingual, we're trying to teach, you know, keeping keeping in mind what we know that that works for teaching English language learners, we recognize are just great teaching strategies that should be taught all over every lesson in every content area in all grades. And I think that's something that we've been able to figure out and unpack really carefully of like, Making learning stick. What is it? It's it's and it and the and it's not. I guess the the harder part is is being able to identify what all of those learning strategies are because they're they're specific to the content. They're specific to the type of experience we want children to have. But but it's basically being able to combine everything that we know about 
what what works for learning and actually putting into practice regularly. So we're talking about, and not to go into too much jargon, but things like TPR. Um, that you know that is a, a practice that works for English language learners, but it also works for everyone. Which is a it's it, it, it means putting movement to a definition. And, and to do that, and to do that well, um, obviously we recognize it requires a lot of preparation, it requires a lot of materials, it requires uh, teachers spending a lot of time ahead of the unit of study to prepare what will the movements be, what will the definitions be, what will the charts look like, what will the books that we use look like, um, and, and, and practicing, there's a lot of rehearsal. And so, so what I think that, you know, is something that's worked for our particular school is really understanding language acquisition, really understanding strong teaching techniques and, and really coaching teachers to be able to, to get it and, and to apply all of those techniques and strategies into every single lesson and not just lessons for English language learners, but lessons for any student that walks through their classroom. A big part of, of your mission in is serving underprivileged children, many of whom are English language learners and Latinos. Are you facing challenges achieving this mission given the high demand for these programs among um, other demographics? There's um, you know, a lot of articles being written now. There's a lot of attention being given to sort of gentrification and how that's changing the landscape of some of these schools. Are you seeing challenges there? So I'll say two things. One thing that we figured it out figured out as a school is that our particular school program is having a lot of success educating the subgroups that typically struggle in other schools. So I I do want to say that we have found a way to provide children who are considered at risk uh, and children who are you know again in the English language learner category and children who are in the special education category, an opportunity to be immersed in this dual language program and and have success with it. And our data shows that our children, you know, in these subgroups are performing, are outperforming um, the district, district average. And, and they're really, their, their growth measures are demonstrating that they're having a lot of success within this particular program. So I do want to say that we are, that's, a, that's been our mission to serve children that may otherwise struggle in other schools and, and for, for a variety of reason, reasons or challenges. And, and we find that we're in a position to close this achievement gap. So with that in mind, it is really true to our mission to continue to serve these population of students. And, and what you're bringing up is a real, is a real issue that, that our school, with the success that it has had, and the bilingual program aspect is highly sought after by, by families, by, by many families who, who believe in this work. Um, I'm finding that the families that are coming to our open houses um, or coming to our to our school to learn more about how to enroll in our school are a demographic of families that are middle, mostly middle class, very well educated parents who are doing all of the research on the the school options they have for their child and and you know going after finding the best way in which they can get their child in the school. So should I or our school do nothing? Yes, the, the demographic of families we're serving will change. 
and will continue continue to change because of this the lottery system that you know people will decide what is their first, second, third priority school based on the research that they've done, and they will be matched to one of their top favorite schools. The the population of families we want to serve may not be um, doing the research for the kinds of schools they want their child in. They may not have time. They may not know they have to. They may not think about that in that way. And many of our families, um, and again, that I identify with for personal reasons, um, are parents who are working two to three jobs, who have more than two children, who are going from place to place uh, so quickly that they don't have a chance to really think about uh, what's coming up later for their child or their youngest. And so I think that it is currently our school's uh, job to ensure that we're serving the population of families our school mission set out to serve. And to do that, we are going, you know, leafleting door to door, letting all families in every neighborhood, especially in, in the neighborhood that we're currently, our school is currently located in, uh, letting them know about our school, letting them know it's a school option, you know, getting the information to them uh, rather than expecting them to come to us. And I think that's that's a big uh, discrepancy in, in the types of families we're trying to get the attention of. Um, we have to actively recruit the families that we want to serve. And that, that requires uh, a different focus when it comes to, to, uh, family recruitment efforts. That's amazing. So you're, so you're not necessarily trying to advertise for the school. You're just trying to reach a certain population that through other means you wouldn't necessarily reach. And I think you know, and a lot of these, a lot of this debate goes around. Well, how is it equitable if you're, you know, putting this this word out, and a certain amount of people are coming in, and those people maybe happen to be of a certain demographic or a certain class, and they they access it first. Many people don't think about what you just mentioned, which is that well, there are many people out there that just don't have access to that information. So by mm-hmm. meeting them where they are, you're allowing them to join in, perhaps in the lottery system or however they, however it is that they um, go go and, and enroll in the school. Yeah, and also the lottery system itself is a computerized system, and so should these families not have a computer at home or know how to navigate? The, the system online, I mean, they're really at a disadvantage. So so we have created these computer, community computer points in our school that are, that are for families who need access to a computer, who may want to create an email account, who may want to uh, print something. I mean, we, things we take for granted because we're so used to technology and by we, I mean, you know, educators who are doing this work every day on, on computers and emailing regularly. Many of the families we're trying to serve are not that comfortable with navigating the Internet um, and, and by positioning the lottery itself on the Internet. Um, it's it's not equitable. And so so like you were saying, we need to create we need to meet them where they are and we need to create the systems that are required for them to have a chance that is equitable um, in terms of school choice. Yeah, and hopefully by meeting them where they are, you'll eventually be sort of bringing them into the fold of using at the school or in other places of using the technologies that other people are using to find the school. Um, So you've talked about some of the challenges and how you've overcome them. And I think just what I'm hearing is wonderful. You're doing a lot of sort of family and community engagement work to make sure that you're reaching everybody who has the ability to kind of come to this school. My next question is about a challenge that I've also sort of heard a lot about, and that is that 
there is a, a substantial teacher shortage that are able to do this work. So there's not a whole lot of teachers who are qualified to teach dual language programs. Um, how have you gone about mitigating that challenge? We have uh, formed a partnership with an amazing organization called Urban Teachers. I believe we're in our fifth year in partnering with them. And they are an organization that recruits teachers from all over the nation. And they provide them with high-level professional development work. And they place them in schools as as, uh, resident teachers. And so what that looks like for a school is that we receive um, resident teachers who are with us full time and they go to grad school after school. And then our commitment to the program and to the teachers is that they will be considered for teaching teacher openings after their first year as a teacher resident. And so I realized that if you have a teacher who's eager to become a teacher, wanting to work in the school setting that that they're placed in, or in, in our case, in this, you know, dual language urban school setting, and and they complete a year of teacher residency, they're in a position to be among you know, uh, a highly effective teacher for future years because they've done all their learning in our school and they, they, they have in their residency year, they've learned the systems, they've learned the mission, they've learned the values that the school has. So should they then want to be considered uh, for a teacher role, they know what to expect. They, they will be ready to deliver the, the teacher expected, um, um, conditions that we set. And so, I find, and, and then and on top of that, if they are placed in the school, they have a commitment to the program and to the school to be at the school for at least five years. So that helps to solve a lot of our teacher recruitment problem because it finds us qualified teachers who are ready when when it's time for them to have a teacher position and, and who are willing to stay for five years. And at our school, we've noticed that teachers are their most effective in in their third year of teaching at our school. And so, so that's, that's phenomenal for us to know that there's teachers that we know are going to be highly effective, if not sooner than three years, but, uh, you know, three year, three year, four year, five. Um, and they're going to be incredibly supportive in continuing the work that we're doing at the school, but also becoming then mentor teachers for, for future urban teacher residents that may be coming up the, the pipeline. That's a great model. I mean, you, you've you've solved for both the recruit recruiting and the retaining factors, both of which can sort of be deadly to to schools. I mean, I know I, I worked uh, at an urban school for the first eight years of my teaching career, um, and I would I would by the way totally agree with you that by year three I felt like I was okay. I had my feet under me. I knew knew what I was doing. The first two years hopefully were good experiences for my students, <laughs> but I watched during the eight years I was there. Um, people come and go, and some people came from different organizations that you know that sort of helped them get their teaching degree. Some people came right from college; others came from other places. But regardless, the retaining of those teachers was was a challenge. So to have that five year commitment from people who have actually seen and lived the experience at DC Bilingual, mm-hmm. um, I think is I think is wonderful. I want to shift a little bit into what you think is sort of going to happen in this dual language space in the in the future. And we're discussing this with lots of different people with 
you know, policymakers and researchers, but um, I am a little biased as a, as a as a longtime teacher. I always love to hear sort of what's happening on the ground and what are your predictions. I mean, what do you think, given all the challenges and the ways that you have dealt with these challenges, and given the um, the the clear benefit of programs like this, what do you think the next five to ten years hold in the world of dual language? If you can kind of make a prediction just outside of DC bilingual. My prediction is that it, they're going to be much better supported at seeing the results that these schools are having. So you mentioned earlier that our school is among the top three highest performing elementary charters in the city, um, looking at you know pre-K three to grade five grade span schools. The first two, so we're third, the first two are also bilingual schools. The, the first um, is th- there's a Mandarin English bilingual school, and then the other is also Spanish English bilingual school, and we're Spanish English bilingual school. And so what this says is that, you know, these schools are having great success rates and and that and then, and then, and then uh, um, next to that, we're looking at the demand rates. Right. We're looking at. um uh, there's a language immersion project that started just recently, maybe four or five years ago, that is trying to help with this movement, this bilingual school movement across the city. And they're they're working on policy issues. They're also working on funding and and they're actually trying to connect all of these good bilingual schools to talk more, to work together and to, you know, get the word out there that that we're highly sought after and that we need more more of these programs and, and that they're really good for children. So um, they're currently collecting data uh, from each of our schools that shows the number of applicants we've had um, for the past three, four years. And and what you will see is that the it's it's overwhelming. The the level of applications we keep receiving are just so high. Uh, lottery is is scheduled to go on for another two, two weeks, I believe. And we are already up to 1,600 applicants for at our school. And we're looking at possibly four, if not fewer spots that are actually open when you take into account um, sibling and staff preference. And so that those data points are, you know, they're devastating because it just demonstrates that we need more seats um, and more seats for these particular schools that are high achieving and dual language and, you know, meeting the needs of, of not only kids, but of families and, and, and supporting entire communities. Sure. From the outside looking in, a lot a lot of education seems as like a simple supply and demand issue. But uh, those of us who who work in it know that change doesn't come sometimes as quickly as we'd like. But I think looking at the success, as you mentioned, of schools like yours, um, the the kind of proof is there. Um, and just a matter of us coming together and and doing something about it in a very sort of difficult climate. I think right now, mm-hmm. I, I I'm also it's interesting to me that you brought up a lot of outside organizations sort of coming in to help. Um, you mentioned uh, Urban Teachers. You mentioned just now an organization that's helping you with data. I wonder if you might speak to that. Like, you know, how are outside organizations helping you as a bilingual school or might even help sort of the, the programs moving forward? Yes, I I have learned this um, over the years that there is there's so much support out there that we need to find and we need to access and we need to use and we need to 
work with um, to to bring in the resources that are going to essentially make our program richer and more comprehensive. Um, and these services, these partnerships range uh, in a variety of ways. So we have, you know, the Capital Area Food Bank. There is there an organization that provide free fruits, vegetables, canned goods to any organization that that requests it and that demonstrates um, a high percentage of of children in in that community uh, that are receiving free or reduced lunch. So that was as simple as as having a meeting with them and saying, hey, here's the population of of families we serve. This is the population of families that receive free and reduced lunch. Do you know do you think you could partner with us and bring, you know, your your food to us and have our, our families access that? And and it was really simple and they they agreed. And so each month um, we host a market and we advertise it with our community, our families and uh, as our neighbors. And, you know, we get about 8000 pounds of fresh fruits, vegetables and canned goods delivered that our our families can then access for free. So that I that was really eye opening for me. We've done this for two years now. We're going to continue to do it for as long as we can. But it's um it was really eye opening um, to know that all it took was knowing that that service existed and knowing that we could benefit from it, our families could benefit from it, and then it's a matter of like just setting it up. So it's a logistics thing, um and and communicating it so that people access it. Uh, similarly, we've had that type of experience with other organizations. So we have, you know, a partnership with um, New Leaders, which is a principal training program and uh, that I'm an alumni of, and they do principal training and they recruit people who would be good candidates to become principals at urban schools, and they do their trainings um, and 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 schools that partner with that 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 um, organization will get candidates similar to urban teachers, but this is to to consider them for future school leadership positions. And so in in our work with them, we've been able to partner to have them come host workshops at our school and, and, and use our site as a training site for their program. And at the same time, we are, we are supported by being able to attend the, the, the workshops or being provided with resources that they think would be conducive to, to our use. So, so these are just two examples, but I have many, many more of them of, of just by saying, Hey, we, we want to work with you. Um, we can uh, support your efforts and we know you could support ours and let's let's work together to to better the experience that our families and our children and our staff have day to day and and it's worked to our advantage. So with, it's it's one of our priorities to 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 be in this space of being a community school that that does provide programming opportunities and partnerships opportunities with with organizations that go you know outside of our school walls and that can can enhance what we're offering to our neighbors and to our families. Yeah, I think. A lot of traditional school systems, for lack of a better term, you know, could learn a lot from that. It's a very, it can be very siloed, um, very lonely at times, and working in schools and creating those partnerships, just knowing that they exist, can make life easier and can also make it more of a community feel, which I know is a big priority for for you. But for somebody just sort of starting off on this journey, um, given everything that you've said and all the success that you've seen, how can people learn more about DC Bilingual or perhaps learn from your model or begin collaborating with or communicating with, with people from, from your school? 
Yeah, so my particular school, I very much recommend um, if anyone's interested in connecting to reach out to us. We have a website, it's dcbilingual.org, and on the website is my information, my email, and I'm happy to have um, emails come in and for me to coordinate communicating how how to have people come by and and see the work that we're doing um, or if, if there are some questions that that anyone has I'm happy to respond via email I get a lot of emails so I I ask for patience on that front but I definitely do try to get through um, any questions that people have and again this is my passion it's I'm committed to this work I care about it a lot so I'm I definitely want to serve as a resource to anyone interested in in doing this work um, because it is my dream that we just eventually have uh, dual language schools all over the nation. And so I, I really would love to have people find me and, um, and, and discuss with me any ideas or thoughts they have about this work. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we wanted to have you on, Daniela, because it's clear that you're passionate about the work. You, you, the evidence is there. You've done wonderful things, um, both hearing from people anecdotally and looking at the data. So I really appreciate you offering um, to to field any questions that people have. And, and with, with the risk of flooding your email, I, I, I would highly recommend reaching out to Danielle. The conversations that I've had um, with her and other people um, on her staff have been, have been amazing. So I just really want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This has been really wonderful. I've learned a lot and I hope that uh, our audience has as well and look forward to collaborating with you in the future and, and hearing more about the wonderful things that you're doing at DC Bilingual. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.